You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to Attaboy Clarence, episode 15. Who'd have thought that Basil Rathburn was so partial to a beer? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. In case we haven't met before, I am Basil Rathburn. You're just in time to see a first-run feature picture presented by the makers of Lise's Light Beer. In commemoration of Lise's 90th anniversary, each week at this time, the Lise Premier Theatre will present a distinguished motion picture. These outstanding films have been especially selected for your pleasure. But first, here is something else for your pleasure. And now let's relax, settle back in a comfortable chair, and enjoy tonight's premiere feature film. I bet when you woke up this morning you didn't think you'd hear this. Thing. Mr. Clean gets rid of dirt and grime and grease in just a minute. Mr. Clean will clean your whole house and everything that's in it. Floors, doors, walls, halls, white sidewall tires and old golf balls. Oh, golf balls. Bathtubs he'll do, he'll even help clean laundry too. Mr. Clean gets rid of dirt and grime and grease in just a minute. Mr. Clean will clean your whole house and everything that's in it. Can he clean a kitchen sink? Quicker than a wink. Can he clean a window sash? Bit random. Faster than a flash. Can he clean a dirty mirror? He'll make it bright and clearer. Can he clean a diamond ring? Why is that dirty? He cleans anything. Mr. Clean gets rid of dirt and diamond grease in just a minute. Mr. Clean will clean your whole house and everything that's in it. Mr. Clean, Mr. Clean, Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean there. When it comes to window sashes, he's the f***ing sheriff. Quick bit of admin, I just want to take this opportunity to wish a very happy anniversary to the JT Movie Podcast. Got to their 50th episode this week. Great show. One of my favourites and brilliant guys. Go and subscribe if you haven't already. Secondly, you may have heard me mention that one of my favourite podcasting contemporaries is uh, Down These Mean Streets podcast, who features a format somewhat similar to my own, except that he specialises in old-time crime radio. He picks some great stuff. He's pointed me towards lots of shows I'd never heard of. And my personal old-time radio library has grown much richer as a result. Well, he's the featured podcast in this week's episode of The Good Podcasts podcast, which is an entire tribute to film noir in itself. Definitely check them both out. First rate. So who's going to win Obsession on DVD? Sally Gray. If you added the hashtag Sally Gray to one of your tweets over the past week, then you'll be in the random draw later on. The more times you tweet it, by the way, the more chance you have of being picked out. So this week, in honour of the fact that the radio play is Orson Welles' original 1938 broadcast of The War of the Worlds, possibly the most infamous radio broadcast of all time, I stuck to sci-fi. 
The first film I watched was The Man Who Changed His Mind from 1936, starring Boris Karloff. This is a British film, and you can kind of tell there's a distinct lack of soundtrack, which was quite a trope in itself in early British films. They very rarely featured a musical score, and I do think that this film suffers slightly from not having a windy, dark soundtrack behind it somewhere. It tells the story of Dr. Lorenz, uh, played by Karloff, who's, surprise, surprise, a mad scientist who's found a way to swap the minds of two different subjects. He starts with monkeys. Minds have been changed over. Does that prove it? Hatred got the mind of the other, the personality, the likes, the dislikes. The thing that if they were human beings, we would call the soul. If they were human beings? Why not? You can't do that. No. I can't do that. Well, it, it, it isn't long before Lorenz has put his science to work for his own evil needs. Uh, the first thing he does is to transfer the mind of his deformed assistant, Clayton, into the body of the super-rich tycoon, Lord Hazelwood. But then he sets his sights on the beautiful Claire Wyatt, so he decides that he also needs an altogether more attractive, younger body himself in order to win her heart. <laughs> To be perfectly honest, although it's a lot of hogwash, The Man Who Changed His Mind is quite a neat little sci-fi thriller that's well worth a look, especially if you're a fan of the universal horrors. The reason that it's such a great watch uh, is because it knows exactly how stupid it is and it sticks its tongue out at you at regular intervals. The scenes with Clayton, the deformed assistant, are a hoot. When he gets switched into the body of the tycoon, you get these really witty little exchanges between him and Karloff. Educated Eton and Trinity Cambridge. Very gratifying. I'm learning a lot about myself. Please pay attention. If Hazelwood is to have a future, he must know his past. Married Francis Amelia. Sounds interesting. No, sorry, she's dead. Clayton, will you listen to me? Do you realise you're addressing the man who made 60 against Oxford in 1900? I want your son to come here. Hobbies, hard work. Oh, what a pompous ass I am. I want your son to come here. Why? I think it's time I met him. I feel it's time I met him myself. We'll invite him. What's his first name? It also stars Anna Lee and John Loder who went on not only to marry Hedy Lamarr, but who climbed to the pinnacle of human achievement by starring as Reginald Parker in The Brighton Strangler. Canterbury. So its B-movie credentials are there for all to see. Preposterous, ultra-British B-movie magic. Classing The Creature from the Black Lagoon as a sci-fi, although I know it's kind of a horror too. For those of you who haven't seen it, this is the 1954 classic about a scientific expedition that goes horribly awry when an ancient species of lizard man is discovered in a dark corner of the Amazon. It stars Julia Adams, uh, Richard Carlson and Richard Denning, although special mention should go to Nesta Paiva as the cigarillo-chomping Lucas, who's the absolute heart of this film as the overweight, sweaty captain of the crappy old ship that trundles the team down the river. So the story is very basic. The fossilised hand of a weird creature is found embedded in a rock in the depths of the Amazon and a team uh, goes to investigate where they're picked off one by one by another one of these creatures who somehow survived unnoticed by man until now. Here it is, gentlemen. Exactly as I found it. 
It's amazing. It's incredible. Could it possibly belong to a Pleistocene man? Well, the chances are much greater that that hand belonged to an amphibian, Mark. One that spent a great deal of time in the water. Well, then how do you account for the structure of the fingers? Obviously for land use. What do you think, Dr. Matos? We can be sure of one thing. Whatever it was, it was very powerful. To be honest, I'm not usually partial to creature features. I don't really click with them, especially creature features of the 50s, which tended to rely more on their effects than their stories. But this is actually the exception. The characters are pretty well drawn for a 1950s B-movie. You have Dr. Reed, who's working for Mark Williams, who was in love with Kay, played by Julia Adams, but she chose Dr. Reed. And uh, the interplay between the three is very interesting. You have sudden bursts of jealousy and anger and a really strained friendship alongside the fact that Julia Adams is the quintessential 1950s bathing beauty. She's absolutely hypnotic when she's on the screen. It's easy to see why these two men are so in love with her and why she's driving such a wedge between them. But of course, they're not the only ones who fall under her spell. The monster also falls in love with her. Hey, what are you doing out there? Come on back. Lunch. You take it easy. Bring it to in a great sequence uh, where she goes swimming with the creature following just underneath the waterline. And it's, it's worth mentioning here that if you can watch this movie in 3D, it's really worth it. This sequence, as with all the underwater scenes in this film, translate brilliantly when shown in 3D. You may not think that a movie this old has much on today's 3D spectacles, but it really holds up well. You get a marvellous sense of depth throughout the movie. If you're going to get this, buy the 3D Blu-ray. Trust me, you'll be surprised at how good this looks and how well the 3D works. Universal have done a great job restoring this for modern audiences. It absolutely pops. I've watched it a few times with my son and we really enjoy it every time we watch it. He barely sleeps most nights because he's afraid of, you know, the gill man bursting out of the wardrobe. But, you know, as long as it's daytime, he's a pretty happy kid. On to Invisible Agent from 1942. Karate Kid. Universal in full World War II propaganda mode here. Much as they did with the Sherlock Holmes license once they got hold of that, they took a classic character and made him fight Nazis. Well, this is the fourth Invisible Man film in the series, and it follows Jack Griffin, the grandson of the original Invisible Man, who somehow has possession of the formula to turn a man invisible, and agrees to help the Allied powers fight the Nazis by using it on himself and parachuting into wartime Germany and spying on the enemy. The drug is to be used by no one but myself. But, Mr. Raymond, we have men of experience who have been chosen for just such a task. Does Mr. Raymond realize the danger of this mission? And are you gentlemen fully aware of the danger in using this drug? I'm the only one who knows its potency. Firstly, for an invisible man, he's quite possibly the most visible man I've ever seen in a movie. He seriously does everything he can to try and be seen. There's a scene where he interrupts a dinner between a Nazi officer and a beautiful spy who's working for the underground, and he seems to do everything he can to be found out. He eats a chicken leg, which floats in midair as it's eaten, and then he kicks the officer up the arse. I mean, it's pretty conspicuous for someone you're not supposed to be able to see. 
And although the effects are quite good, Universal were obviously a little bit too pleased with them. You get awfully tired of the whole floating cigarette trick. I mean, whereas James Whale's original Invisible Man film from 1933 was this masterclass in direction, it was mainly the movement of the camera itself that told you where the Invisible Man was. In this case, it does everything it can to let you know where he is. You have footprints appearing on a carpet. You have you know, seats that sink when he sits down. Ornaments are moved. Blankets are lifted up. He spends a good portion of the film with face cream on so that he can carry on a romance. <laughs> restraint, Universal, restraint! The dialogue is brilliant too. This is, this is amazing. Well, they told me to expect an invisible man, but... But what? You thought he'd be visible? There's a, a really uncomfortable scene where he kisses the main love interest to it about half an hour in. You sort of see her lips press in, but the effects aren't exactly Avatar, so it ends up being a bit like the entity. Her face sort of folds in on itself. It's massively disturbing and arousing at the same time. And... The cast includes Sir Cedric Hardwick, who's quite possibly the most British man who ever lived, as a Gestapo officer, and Peter Lorre, possibly the most un-Japanese man of all time, as a Japanese agent. Keep rocking. No, you keep rocking, invisible agent. Well, this is the final intermission on Lysis Premier Theatre. Enjoying yourselves? You see, I've been dreading telling you about the next film all week. This is a film that my father has been begging me to watch for years, and I finally made myself watch it this week as it's sci-fi week. God, where do I start on this? Okay, I should probably set the scene when it comes to my father. His name's John. He's in his 60s, and he is a huge movie and television fan, and occasionally, but not very often at all, we will agree on a film. It's happened maybe seven times. He looks a bit like the little Chuckle Brother after he's eaten the big Chuckle Brother with a Birmingham accent. So he's been constantly nagging me to watch this film for years and years. It's from 1958 and it's called The Trollenberg Terror. Trollenberg! Right, so it's about a disgraced scientist who goes to the Trollenberg Mountain Observatory to see his professor friend, who's played by Alf Garnet, in the company of two sisters, one of whom is psychic. Strange murders have been taking place on the slopes of the Trollenberg Mountain. People have been having their heads ripped off, and there's a peculiar cloud that seems to be lingering on one spot of the mountain about halfway up that seems to be hiding something. Well, it isn't long before the psychic sister starts to receive these warnings of danger, and she and the disgraced scientist, Alan, have to try and convince everyone in the village at the foot of the mountain that something evil is about to emerge from the strange cloud. Well, how long have you been here in Trollenberg, Alan? Got here this morning, came right up to see you. You haven't heard about the accidents, then? Yes, I, I heard about the students. Yeah, that was one of them, but, but there have been others, many others. Where people climb mountains, there are lots of accidents. That's true. And sometimes the bodies, they disappear. But here, the search parties go out and always they find nothing. Now, why is that? Okay, so on 
paper, I should love this film, and when you sum the thing up in two paragraphs like that, it sounds like it might be fun, but this is seriously one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life. Firstly, nothing happens for the first hour, it's just mind-numbing conversation after conversation. Occasionally someone gets beheaded by the unseen monster, and to give it some credit, there's a fair amount of gore for a film that was made in 1958. There's blood on show here, and quite a lot of it, but there are zero scares. It's so excruciatingly badly directed that simply watching the film becomes this superhuman test of endurance. Secondly, the dialogue is absolutely appalling. How long before they get here? An hour, maybe. We've got just an hour to decide what we're going to do. Then you have Alan, the disgraced scientist, played by Forrest Tucker, whose lack of personality threatens to disrupt the space-time continuum at every moment. Seriously, how can a person be this bland? It defies science. So you go through the movie with great difficulty, hoping and praying that when the monster is finally revealed, it will all be worth it. And then it shows itself. I kid you not, the monster is a huge plastic testicle with a little eye on the front. I mean, my kids have brought home art projects from school that look superior to this thing, even after they've been dropped on the way home. Amazingly, the film gets even worse when the monster starts attacking. It just completely runs out of ideas, so the script just starts hurling everything it can at the wall to see what sticks. The people who are trapped at the observatory just start making petrol bombs and chucking them around. And after that happens, it's like they're making it up as they go along. I'm going to throw a bomb at that when you watch on the screen see what happens. Oh, okay, let's throw a bomb at that one and see what happens. And the other people just treat it like he's going down the shop. I'm going to throw a bomb at that when you watch on the screen see what happens. Hey, Alan, get us some chips. So basically, they end up beating the monster that they've spent three quarters of the film discussing in excruciating detail by throwing a load of bombs at it until it dies. Just keep chucking bombs in its eyes. God, such a terrible, terrible film. And now I have to tell my dad. <laughs> I know exactly how the conversation's going to go. Hi, Dad. It's Adam. Hello, son. What do you want? I'm watching Columbo. Um, I just wanted to tell you that I finally got round to watching the Trollenberg Terror this week. The Trollenberg Terror? Brilliant. Did you like it? Um, uh, uh, no. No, I didn't, actually. Oh, it's great, isn't it? It's really scary. It's what they call a horror film, son. Right, right, right. Is, is that what they're called? Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. What, what was your favourite bit? Uh, Did you like the ending? Uh, y- yes. Actually, the end was my favourite part. It's really emotional, isn't it? It made me cry when I watched it. Uh-huh. Do you know what other film makes me cry when I watch it? Have a guess. Uh... Uh, uh, Schindler's List? No. Uh, uh, Sophie's Choice? No, Van Helsing, you know, with Hugo Jackson. Mm-hmm. Well, she dies at the end, I cried my eyes out. <laughs> I bet you cried as well, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Now, here is the conclusion to our picture. 
So, on to the radio play. Well, what an honour. Possibly the most infamous radio broadcast of all time. Its legend is vast and wide, and perhaps a little bit overinflated. Stories have filtered down throughout the years about how America was sent into a mess of destruction and rioting when people took to the streets to escape the alien invasion that was being broadcast live. The tales have become perhaps a little bit exaggerated over the years. In truth, the broadcast itself was only heard by about 2% of radio listeners that night. And while there were definitely cases of people believing that the broadcast was a genuine news report and taking flight, they were relatively few, and it certainly didn't send America into a meltdown. However, it's a great story, and one that I think people want to believe happened. Orson Welles himself was delighted at the reaction, especially when people began to sue CBS for mental anguish. <laughs> All the lawsuits were thrown out of court except one, which involved a man who'd spent the money he'd been saving up to buy a new pair of shoes uh, on a ticket out of Massachusetts. Well, Wells sent him a cheque to buy new shoes with. Anyway, see what you think. If nothing else, it's a fantastic drama, obviously groundbreaking for its time. Would you have been fooled? Listen and see. I do have a few legalities to observe in order to play this for you. First of all, I have not modified this work, and the estate of Howard Koch owns the rights to this radio broadcast. It is licensed under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derives, 2.5 Generic, and a link to the source material can be found at archive.org slash details slash Orson Welles Mr. Bruns. And now, without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to leave you in the hands of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre. If you survive, I'll see you on the other side. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. <laughs> Gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theatre and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October... 
business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. For the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern state, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature, 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Capacita. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello, playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. Now a tune that never loses favor, the ever-popular Stardust, Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra.
We are ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is Carl Phillips speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton. I'm standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through the giant lens. I'll ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides the ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communication. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions? Any time, Mr. Phillips. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disk swimming in the blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now, because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth, in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? Huh. Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Although, that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then, you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? Say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Phillips, I cannot account for it. Oh, by the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. <laughs> well, that seems a safe enough distance. Uh, just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. While he reads it, let me remind you that we... We are speaking to you from the observatory in Princeton, New Jersey, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Pearson. Uh, one moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message which he has just received. Uh, Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Mr. Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Natural History Museum, New York. Quote, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost... Earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Oh, hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past 10 minutes... We've been speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to our New York studio. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News, Toronto, Canada. Professor Morse of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. 
It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millette and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. Take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmot Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin. Paint for you a word picture of a strange scene before my eyes, but something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it, yes. I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Has a diameter of, um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say, uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. It's curious. Spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. Uh, 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 would you mind standing one side, please? While the police are pushing the crowd back. Here's Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmot... Uh, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Uh, a step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmot. Well, I was listening to the radio. Closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Uh, louder, please, closer. Yes. <clears throat> I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsing. That professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half dozen and half... Yes, yes, Mr. Wilmot, and uh, then what happened? Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio... Kind of halfway. Yes, Mr. Wilmot. And then you saw something. Well, not first off. I heard something. And what did you hear? A hissing sound like this. Uh, kind of like a Fourth of July rocket. Yes, then what? I turned my head out the window and would have sworn I was to sleep and dreaming. Yes. I seen a kind of greenish streak and then zingo. Something smacked the ground. Knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmot? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. Well, thank you, Mr. Wilmot. Thank you very much. Yeah, you want me to tell No, that's quite all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm, where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us, and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. The car's headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object's half buried. 
Now, some of the more daring stones now are venturing near the edge. Yeah, the silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. <laughs> One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with the policeman. Now, the policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, sir. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I see. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? What to think? The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and you can see it's cylindrical uh, shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw and this thing must be hollow. He's moving! Look at the man! Keep back there! Keep back there! Keep those idiots back! Keep those idiots back! Keep off! The top's loose! Stand back! Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's calling someone or something. I can see turning out of that black hole two luminous disks. The eyes, it might be a face, might be almost... But heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. Oh, yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large. It's large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that face, it's... Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable, but I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is... That's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seemed to oh, it quiver and pulsate, and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now, and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can't find words. Well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description till I can take a new position. Hold on, will you, please? I'll be right back in a minute. bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my on? Ladies and gentlemen... Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side... Studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. 
Those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods. The fires, the, the gas tanks, tanks for the automobiles spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey. I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as, as far west as Princeton and uh, east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and uh, will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to... Just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by direct wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. 
It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That, that is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Trenton hospital. Now, here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C. The office of the director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia stationed outside of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Princeton Junction. The fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there is no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald, Vice President in Charge of Operations. We have received a request from the state militia of Trenton to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation, and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Trenton. We take you now to the field headquarters of the state militia near Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover's Mill. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry, without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their cocky uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. Looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Millstone River. Probably fire started by campers. Well, uh, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it'll all be over. Now, wait a minute. I, I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmoth Farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tub, rather. Well, wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal, kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. What? It's, it's standing on legs, actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns 
pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allerton and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area. And we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We're informed that the central portion of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here is a special bulletin in New York. Cables have been received from English... French and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voiced the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled on a second cylinder similar to the first embedded in the Great Swamp, 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up the second invading unit before the cylinder can be opened and the fighting machine rigged. They are taking up a position in the foothills of Watchung Mountains. Another, another, another Bolton from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Morristown. 
Machine's also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please, ladies and gentlemen. We've, uh, we've run special wires to the artillery line and adjacent villages to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Watching Mountains. Range 32 meters. 32 meters. Direction 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire. Yards to the right, sir. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Objection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire. Yes. It's that. Got the tripod of one of them. That's stop. The others are trying to repair it. Quick, get the range. Shift 50, 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection, 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire. Can't see the shell answer. Letting off a smoke. What is it? Black smoke, sir. Moving this way. Flying close to the ground. Moving fast. Put on gas masks. Get ready to fire. Shift to 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection, 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire. There can't be, sir. Smoke's coming nearer. Get the rain. <coughs> meters. 23 meters. 23 meters. Projection, 22. Army bombing plane B-843 off Bayonne, New Jersey. Lieutenant Bolt commanding eight bombers. Reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. This is Bolt reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Reinforced by three machines from the Morristown Cylinder. Six altogether. One machine partially crippled. Believed hit by shell from Army gun in Wachung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to the earth of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns east, crossing Passaic River into the Jersey marshes. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. The machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. Planes circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards, and we'll be over the first. Eight hundred yards. Six hundred. 
hundred. Two hundred. There they go. The giant arm raised. Green flash. They're spraying us with flame. Two thousand feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them. Plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone. Eight. Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Come in, please. This is Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight Army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Flats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction of... This is Newark, New Jersey. Newark, New Jersey. Warning. Poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey marshes. Reaches South Street. Gas masks useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use routes 7, 23, 24. Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over, over Raymond Boulevard... UX to L calling CQ, 2X to L calling CQ, 2X to L calling 8X3R. Come in, please. This is 8X3R coming back at 2X to L. Eyes reception. Eyes reception. K, please. Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter? Where are you? Speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchison River Parkway is still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island, hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service here below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the harbor, all, all manner of boats, overloaded with fleeing population, pulling out from docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise in crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute, the, the enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five. Five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, wading, wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. 
a bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be timed and spaced. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. Steel cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's... It's 50 feet. listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, starring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air. set down these notes on paper. I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present furtive existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I looked down at my blackened hand and I 
Try to connect them with a professor who lives at Princeton and who on the night of October 20th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my... my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? Writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars. But to write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. Find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. Keep watch at the window. Time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but at length there's a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. Morning. Morning. Sun streams in the window. The black cloud of gas is lifted and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm had passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road. No traffic. Here and there, a wrecked car, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. Push on north. Some reason I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. And I keep a careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth. Come to a chestnut tree. October. Chestnuts are ripe. Fill my pockets. I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature. A small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion. The joy of finding another living being. Push on north, I find dead cows in a brackish field and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy in a silo. Main standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse. Deserted by the sea. Stride the silo, purchase a weathercock. The arrow points north. North. Next day, I come to a city. City vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off as if of a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of his hand. Reached the outskirts, I found Newark. Newark, undemolished but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it. It 
rose up and became a man. A man armed with a large knife. Stop! Where do you come from? Oh, I come from... from many places. A long time ago, from Princeton. Princeton, huh? Near Grover's Mill. Yes. Grover's Mill. <laughs> There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for people. Hey, what was that? Did you hear something just then? No. Only a bird. A live bird. Yeah. You get to know that birds have shadows these days. Say, we're in the open here. Let's crawl in this doorway here and talk. Have you seen any Martians? No. They're going over to New York. Night, the sky's alive with their lights, just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. Hmm. Then it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I. Two of us left. Yeah. They got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in a uniform. Yeah, what's left of it. I was in the militia. National Guard. <laughs> That's good. There wasn't any war. Any more than there's war between men and ants. Yes, but we're eatable ants. I found that out. What'll they do to us? I thought it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. A Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep on doing that. They'll begin catching us systematic-like, keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have sense enough to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now, instead of our... Rushing around blind, we got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress. Yes, but if that's so, what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life, that's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either. Tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I got a plan. We men as men, we're finished. We don't know enough. We got to learn plenty before we got a chance. We've got to live and keep free while we learn, see? I've thought it all out, see? Well, tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts. That's what it got it. That, that's what it got to be. That's why I watched you. Watched you. All those little office workers that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't any stuff in them. 
run. Run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running to catch their commuters' train in the morning. Afraid that you can if they didn't. Running back at night. Afraid they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. Yeah, and on Sundays, worried about the hereafter. Well, the Martians, they'll be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages. Good food. Careful breeding. No worries. Yeah, after a week or so of chasing around the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. That isn't all. These Martians are going to make pets of some of them. Train them to do tricks. Who knows, get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. Yeah, and some maybe. They'll train to hunt us. Oh, no, it's impossible. Human yes, beings. they will. There's men who do it gladly. If one of them ever comes after me, by. In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the earth? I got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones, they're big enough for anybody. Then there's cellars, vaults. Underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. You begin to see, huh? We'll get a bunch of strong men together. No weakness. That rubbish, out. As you meant me to go. All right. Give you a chance, didn't I? Won't quarrel about that. Go on. Well, we got to make safe places for us to stay in, see? Get all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. May not be so much we have to learn before... Listen. Just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left. Not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, see? But men. Men who've learned the way how. May even be in our time. Gee. Imagine having one of them lovely things with its heat ray wide and free. We'd turn it on Martians. We'd turn it on men. We'd bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan. Yeah. You. Me. A few more of us. We'd own the world. I see. Hey. Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Bye, stranger. Well, after parting with the artilleryman, I came at last to the Holland Tunnel, entered that silent tube, anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up Canal Street. Reached 14th Street, and there again were black powder and several bodies and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses I... Wandered up through the 30s and 40s. Stood alone on Times Square. Caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. Made a wide circle around me as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. Walked up Broadway in the direction of that... that strange powder past silent shop windows... Displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks. Past the Capitol Theater. Silent. 
dark. Past a shooting gallery where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks near Columbus Circle. I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. Over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky. Hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine standing somewhere in Central Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I, I, I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I, I climbed a small hill above the pond at 60th Street, and from there I could see, standing in a silent row along the mall, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground. And there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and disease bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain, after all, man's defenses had failed by the humblest thing that God, as wisdom, has put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep of space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere, now we see further, dim and wonderful is the vision I've conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastnesses of sidereal space, but a remote dream, maybe. Maybe that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve to them and not to us. It's the future ordained, perhaps. Ah, strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study at Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record, begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright and clean-cut, hard and silent under the dawn of that last great day. <laughs> This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be, the Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. 
starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations, Coast to Coast, has brought you The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, the 17th in its weekly series of dramatic broadcasts featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air. Next week, we present a dramatization of three famous short stories. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. And that was the Mercury Radio Theater's infamous presentation of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. I do hope you enjoyed it. And so... On to Who's One Obsession on DVD. I have it here. Along with my iPad, which has every single tweet containing the hashtag Sally Gray. I'm going to do this right now. So I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to scroll up and down and up and down. Up and down and up and down. And my finger is on... Beardy Freak. That's at Grindhouse Dave. Fantastic. If you'd be so kind as to drop me an email with your postal details, I shall get this into the post box as soon as I can for you. Well, this is the last episode for a few weeks. I shall be seeing you very soon with the next full-length special entitled Hunting Witches with Walt Disney, which should be with you very soon. The other specials are still available, if you haven't heard them yet. Episode 11 is entitled Sex in Monochrome, and it's all about sex in cinema before the censors got tough. And episode 6 is entitled The Games Afoot, which tells the story of Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce's series of Sherlock Holmes films. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all the details at attaboyclarence.com. If you find yourselves with a few spare minutes over the next couple of weeks, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Spreaker or SoundCloud or Podfeed or any of the other thousand services I've been crowbarring myself into. It really helps. So until we meet again, thank you for your constant kind words and for your companionship. Thank you so much for the retweets and the follow Fridays and the emails. They are an always gratefully received source of fuel for me. Take care of yourselves, and I look forward to seeing you very soon. All the best. Well, I hope you've enjoyed tonight's film as much as I did. Won't you join us again next week at this time, when the Lysia Premier Theatre will present another first-run feature film. Until then, the makers of Lysia's Light Beer join me in wishing you... A very pleasant good evening.